Hello and welcome to the May 25th edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I am Anthony Bardaway and I will be flying solo today. Romeo had other commitments and was not able to make it to recording. A little bit of housekeeping first. Like we said in the last episode, there were changes made to the Patreon. So if you are a patron, please check and make sure that you are in the correct tier that you would like to be. Since we did make some changes to them, so just to, for you to know. This week will also be the first week of the newsletter. So if you are in a tier that's appropriate for that, uh, please pay attention to that. It's something that we're working on and are looking for it to improve. A lot has happened since our last episode. A lot has gone in Ukraine's favor and a lot has been more unfortunate. We'll be mixing in the good with the bad on this one. And like in last episode, we said that there was a threat that something would come of Victory Day of May 9th. We were afraid that perhaps Russia would announce a general mobilization, that it would formally annex Kherson Oblast, that it would do something. And ultimately, they didn't do much of anything. Putin's speech on that day was overall pretty bland and boring. Um, not much interesting was said. Nothing that we feared on that day came to pass, so we had nothing to update you on. So I suppose we should mark that in the good column. However, Mariupol, that story came to a temporary end. The defenders of the Azovstal metallurgical plant, after heroically defending their position for the entirety of the war from the very beginning, finally surrendered. They're fighting a last-ditch effort in the caverns underneath the steelworks, but we're running out of food, running out of supplies, running out of ammunition, hopelessly surrounded, hopelessly outnumbered, and they finally, eventually gave in. Now, supposedly, this was supposed to be part of a prisoner exchange, that in exchange for the care and perhaps even release of the Azovstal fighters, Russia would receive a number of its own prisoners of war in return. However, thus far, this has not happened. You really can't trust the Russian military. Now, supposedly, they will be held as prisoners of war after receiving treatment, though there is no saying how many of them will survive imprisonment in Russian camps. The Russians absolutely hate these men and women who bled them for weeks on end, killing thousands of Russian soldiers and proving that the city of Mariupol is not a part of the Russian world. Who knows, maybe there will be an exchange, but I'm not going to be too optimistic about that. Meanwhile, the head of the Donetsk People's Republic, Bushilin, that any captured soldiers who have not yet been transferred to official Russian custody, it's still Russian custody, but we've gone over the uh, <laughs> divide there, I suppose, or lack thereof, the illusory divide between the DNR and Russia. He said if they would take these captured soldiers, um, put them on tribunals for their crimes against the Russian people, and it has been heavily implied they would be executed, the DNR does have the death penalty, and they're very much making a point of the fact that they have the death penalty. So strategically, I can't say that this is as much of a setback. There was truly no hope for the Azovstal fighters at any point, I believe. Mariupol was very quickly surrounded. 
the fight that these fighters did was to delay the Russians for as long as possible to eat up Russian lives, to eat up Russian material, to eat up Russian morale. And they succeeded beyond all expectations in that regard. Again, hopefully they can make it home. We'll just have to sit and wait. So that was one for the good column and now one for the very bad column. But next we'll go on to a a Ukrainian victory. Kharkiv, the second largest city in the country, has been freed from direct Russian attack. We talked a a little bit about it last episode. We were talking about how the Ukrainian offensive was pushing hard against the Russian positions. But this Ukrainian counteroffensive was able to push the Russians back pretty much straight to the border in some places, and only a couple of kilometers difference in others. Many of these uh, suburban and surrounding areas surrounding Kharkiv were liberated. Of course, that means um, finding the same thing that's found in all liberated territory of Russian murder, rape, um, all atrocity of all kinds. But in these places, those atrocities have ended. And that's what this uh, war is all about from the Ukrainian side freeing Ukrainians from the oppression of the Russian occupier. And they have pushed the Russians so far back that Kharkiv is no longer in artillery range. So from the very first days of the war, Kharkiv has been under withering artillery fire, withering rocket fire, and large parts of the city have been destroyed. A large percentage of especially tall buildings especially have been destroyed. And the most direct threat, the artillery, is been neutralized, which means the people of Kharkiv are far safer than they have been since this phase of the war began. And we'll talk a little bit about this part of it in a bit in the next section, but this counteroffensive has gone straight to the Donets River and even made minor crossings. But of course, while the artillery attacks are no longer a threat, the rocket attacks very much are. Kharkiv will continue to be hit with rockets for as long as this war goes on. It is, like I said, the second largest city, extraordinarily important, and quite close to the Russian border. The Russians will not let it just be at peace. One thing the Russians destroyed as they were being driven away from the city was the plant genetic bank. It's essentially a library of seeds. It's a way of preserving and saving plant biodiversity. It has endless uses in the fields of ecology and agriculture especially. We need to talk about Ukrainian agriculture and how it has been affected. But this seed bank is a way of preserving genetic material of various plants. So as um, scientific advancement goes on and these plants change in different ways, We still have the old versions. That's one use for it. And when you're talking about agriculture, that's very, very important for being able to track diseases and increase yield. It is one of the most important scientific um, institutions in the country, and now it has been destroyed. The Russians destroyed the building that this genetic material was housed in, and it is unsalvageable, it seems. So Ukraine, as a major agricultural producer, just lost one of the things that gave it its scientific edge in that field. Now, was there any purpose for this? Was it a military target? Not at all. What it will do is cause human suffering. And that's what the Russians want. Now, I mentioned that the Ukrainian counteroffensive around Kharkiv reached the point of the Donets River. And for this, I would really like to talk about the importance of the Donets River 
to the current military situation. Now, this is a very rough um, understanding of things, but for the most part, the Russians control the territory to the east of the Donetsk River, while the Ukrainians control the territory to the west of the Donetsk River. Now, rivers have played an important role in many parts of this war. One of the things that led to the Ukrainian victory in the battle for Kiev was the flooding of the Irpin River. Now, this is not an especially large river most of the time. It is easily fordable. There's a pretty advanced series of bridges, even if a lot of them were destroyed at the time. They're rebuilt now. But by flooding this river, it turned what would usually be a pretty clear thoroughfare into a flooded out swamp that was impossible to cross, especially for heavy Russian armor. This morass swallowed up the Russian armor. It caused horrific problems with their supply chain. It made moving from north to south in the Russian lines very, very difficult. And with any guerrilla warfare type situation, it caused friction. Friction is just making things more difficult for the enemy, and it made things very difficult for the enemy. In many other places, river crossings being blown or not blown, as is the case with Herson, made a world of difference on how successful the defense was. And a river crossing is not the most easy thing in the world to pull off. So let's look at the Donetsk River specifically. The Seversky Donetsk River is what the area of the Donbass takes its name from. It is, the most part, the Donetsk River Basin. And right now, a lot of the fighting, the front line of the fighting, many ways traces the route of this river. So let's go first to the, albeit minor, successes that Ukraine has in using the river successfully and in crossing it to the, enemy's, to the enemy bank. Now, the extent of this river crossing is still unknown. There is not a terribly large amount of information about it, or even if they are able to fully hold this position, there's conflicting information about whether after crossing and taking hold of the opposite bank of the river, if the Ukrainians have been able to actually hold that position. I'm not entirely sure on this. I've tried to look it up, and it is very muddled. Some people say yes, others no. But the Ukrainians were able to cross at the town of Stary Saltiv. Now, again, not sure how far they've gone with this, but if Ukraine is able to successfully take a beachhead of the Donetsk River at Stary Saltiv, then that puts them in position to slowly advance towards the Russian salient running down from Vovshansk down to Izium. Or if just the point of being able to interrupt the supply chain leading down to Izium, that would be a major blow to the Russian advance there. Though the Russians have not made a terribly large amount of progress from the Izium salient like they had been concentrating on. So that's the story of a Ukrainian crossing. Again, I really have to stress this. We don't have much information about how successful it was, and it seems like whatever progress was made was very minor. However, the Russians have had far worse luck than that in trying to cross the Donetsk River. And that's where we look at their multiple river crossings in the direction of Severodonetsk. Now, Severodonetsk is the place to watch right now. It is the most important battlefield of the war, and it is directly on the Donetsk River. 
The Russians have been trying to surround it in one way from the town of Papasna, which they were able to hold and are making a troubling amount of progress from. That is the southern part of their attempted pincer, which is, again, very, very worrying. The Russians are making a lot of progress. This is a very dangerous situation. But from the other end of the pincer, at Bilohorivka, Sorobyanka, these towns directly on the Donets River, Russia has tried to cross there and have been annihilated time and time again. I think there have been four attempted crossings at last count, and they have all been destroyed. One such crossing led to an entire Russian battalion tactical group being made battlefield inoperable. The massive destruction of most of their military equipment and presumably a large number of Russian soldiers trying to make this crossing was one of the largest mass casualty events on the Russian side of the entire war, right up there with the sinking of the Moskva. And that was only one crossing. There have been multiple other attempted crossings that all suffered the same fate. The Russians are finding the crossing of the Donetsk River outside of Severodonetsk extraordinarily difficult and extraordinarily costly, but they continue to try to make that attempt because they need Severodonetsk captured and are not concerned with how many lives it takes in order to do so. So that's the story of how Ukrainians are trying to cross the Donetsk and how the Russians have tried to cross the Donetsk. On the Ukrainian side, uh, minor but still progress and on the russian side horrible horrible failure leading to massive massive amounts of death but that brings me to my next point which is the cities that are on the well the russian side of the river but still under the control of ukraine and these towns are the ones that are at most danger right now in most cases their bridges have been destroyed either by the Ukrainians to stall in advance or by the Russians to cut them off from supplies. But in several places, Ukrainian forces are stranded on the other side of this river, which has proven to be quite the obstacle has been trying to explain. So the three cities to look at most here are again, Severodonetsk, Lemon, and Sviatohorsk. And of course, we have to first talk about Severodonetsk. As I was explaining, it is very much in danger of being surrounded by the Russian advance from the direction of Papasna. They have penetrated deep into Ukrainian-held territory from that direction to the point where they are now threatening the larger town of Bakhmut. I believe that it will be surrounded very, very soon. I hate to be um, too much of a pessimist or a doomer about it, but the rate that Russians have been completing its encirclement does not seem very sustainable for the Ukrainian forces, especially now that the Russians have cut off the major road into Severodonetsk and again destroyed its bridges. It is already a supposedly called a soft encirclement because of that. Getting supplies into the city is remarkably difficult. Not as much as Mariupol was, but pretty much to that point. And like with Mariupol, Severodonetsk is being destroyed right now. It is being leveled to the ground by Russian forces trying to take it. They say they are there to liberate Severodonetsk, and they are annihilating the city and the people who live there. And has always been the case. This destruction is accompanied by, again, the usual Russian crimes. It's times like this where I think of a quote by the Roman historian Tacitus, to ravage, to slaughter, 
to usurp under false titles they call empire, and where they make a desert, they call it peace. Or, how Lord Byron put it, mark where his carnage and his conquest cease. He makes a solitude and calls it peace. As what happened to Mariupol is what's happening to Severodonetsk. After Severodonetsk, it is what will happen to Bakhmut. It is what will happen to Slovyansk. It is what will happen to Kramatorsk. It is what will happen to everywhere that Russia is able to touch. This land of people that they call Russians that they are trying to reintegrate with the Russian mainland, it is ruining the lives of the people who live there. It is destroying the culture that they call Russian culture. It is making a desert and calling it peace. So I think of what's happening to Severodonetsk and all these places, and I have to look at the people who are calling for peace and ask what they think peace looks like. It looks like murder. It looks like rape. It looks like mass destruction. It looks like the destruction of culture. It looks like the erasure of language. And that is the peace they're looking for. But I <laughs> digress on that. It's just that um, looking at what's happening to Severodonetsk is, it's, it's heart-wrenching, just like everything else is heart-wrenching. But they're pinned on the other side of the river and are being surrounded on the other bank of it. Again, very dire situation. And I hate to armchair general, but it seems like the only choice is to withdraw and save as many lives as they can, soldier and civilian, from Severodonetsk. Next, we look at Lehman. This town is much closer to Slovyansk, and as of recording, the news has come out that the Russian army has entered the city limits of this town. There is now fierce urban fighting between the Russians who are holding the northern side of the town and the Ukrainians who hold the south. Now, unlike Severodonetsk, it is not directly on the bank of the Donetsk River, but it is very close. And once it falls, that means Slovyansk now becomes a front line on the other side of the river. And like Severodonetsk, reinforcement and resupply in this town is massively difficult. And the clock is very much ticking on how much they will be able to hold out. And the third spot around the river I want to look at is Sviatohrsk. Sviatohrsk is a very old town in this region, built up around the monastery there. We've talked a bit about it before in the past. I was there in December, actually. It maybe is the second most important Orthodox site in the country after the Petersk Lavra in Kiev. And this site, this very important site for, I suppose, uh, Russian Orthodox culture has been destroyed by a group of soldiers calling themselves the defenders of Russian Orthodoxy. The town itself is something of a resort because of the tourism surrounding this monastery and some skiing in the area, actually. There's some hills. But again, it is on the other side of the river. And as being on the other side of the river, they are extraordinarily vulnerable. I think that this town might be a bit harder to take than the others because it is tucked away in these, um, I hate to call them mountains per se, but large hills and forest. So it will be harder to assault than Severodonetsk, which is wide open. But it is an important northern approach that the Russians need to take Slovyansk. So that's the situation with this river. It is a barrier that both helps and hinders either side of the conflict. It is easy to supply your forces as long as they are on the proper bank. 
but it is hard to attack across it as so many hundreds of Russian soldiers had to learn the hard way. It is the most important natural barrier that there is in this part of the country. The fighting for it will be fierce and is fierce and is bloody and is some of the worst fighting that the world has seen in a very long time. But what happens if the Russians are able to breach this natural defense and they have been able to go around it by approaching from the Pasna direction? What happens next? There's always something that happens next. Well, in this part of Donbass, the largest, um, the, I suppose, something of a metropolitan area is where most people live. It goes Slovyansk, Kramatorsk, Druzhivka, Konstantinivka, Turetsk, which in peaceful times would then lead to Horlivka and Donetsk. But as of right now, that is the major urban center of this area, this, this line of cities. Now, as it is right now, there is still quite a bit of defenses in between these places and the Russian advance. And like we were, I've been talking about for a, a quite a bit of time there, the river. So, so far, these have not been the direct front line, with the exception of Turetsk. This also means that these are the most fortified cities in the area. Severodonetsk was the uh, new capital of the Luhansk region after the fall of Luhansk. So it is a major city with major defenses but much more isolated than this metropolitan area. Kramatorsk being the de facto capital of the Donetsk Oblast after the fall of Donetsk. So the fighting to take these towns will be the hardest, more or less, I believe the hardest of the battle for Donbass, and in many ways the entirety of the war. It all hinges on being able to defend these cities, because again, they're large, they're fortified, they're militarized. So as what I'm seeing is the gradual failure of the battle for Severodonetsk, it will shift first to Bakhmut, which is something of the buffer in between this area and Severodonetsk, and Vapasna. So if Bakhmut will hold, this uh, major metropolitan grouping will have a bit of distance between itself and the Russians. But if Bakhmut falls, then Konstantinivka specifically, will be the immediate front line, while these other cities will form a rather broad front against any Russian advances. But they're not just approaching from the north here. We also have to look to the south of this line as well. The southern shield, I guess you can call it, are the cities of Turetsk and New York. New York, of course, taking its name from the other New York. Before this phase of the war, it was really starting to blossom a bit as a a cultural center with various cultural initiatives, kind of playing with the fact that it's called New York, you know, New York uh, Literary Festival, New York Marathon, that kind of thing. But right now, the Russians are approaching it from both the eastern and southern ends, and it is very much the front. I've, I've been keeping tab of this city because of the cultural angle, and I just because I um, already heard from them going back a while. But this city, very small. Um, if you listen to my report from my trip in December, this is where I visited the Ukrainian front lines back then. I worry very much about the soldiers that I met there. I hope that they are okay. The odds of all of them being alive at this point are, are low. But New York is the major front. And then going southward to Evdivka. Evdivka really has been really a center point of the Donbass war going back to the beginnings of it. It is the first major city north of Donetsk 
It is so it was already very much on the front lines of the fighting. It is home to an extraordinarily important factory that processes coke from coal that's used in metallurgy. Very, very economically important to the Ukrainian metallurgical uh, industry. And I saw today that it is slowly being surrounded. The major highway into the town, the H-20, has been cut off from the north. The Russians hold the city of Novobakhmutivka on the eastern side of the highway and Ocheretina on the western side. So the easiest way to get supplies into the town has been cut off. So it is now something of a pocket. Avdivka is very strong. It's been called a fortress city for its role in the war. It probably has stronger defenses than most, but it has been effectively cut off from the rest of the Ukrainian war effort in Donbass. And holding on to it will be a very difficult fight for those there. Now, there's still some ways into the city. The H-20 was already uh, quite perilous because the Russians, during uh, the previous phase of the war, controlled the major junction leading into town. So to approach the city from the north, you had to take back roads anyway. So having to take alternative routes is not exactly new for the city. Uh, they will be able to escape through Orlivka, but a highway is much easier to work with than back roads. So that's the situation with the fighting. Kharkiv has been more or less won. The Ukrainian army is consolidating its position there and has even been able to penetrate into the other side of the Donetsk River and slowly threaten the Russian supplies into the Izum salient. But other places on the Donbass front are very dire. So again, Severodonetsk, Lemon, Avdivka, New York, Sviatohorsk. Keep an eye on the names of these places. Many of them may fall even by the time of the release of this episode or they may hold on against all odds. But if they do fall, it will just be to another line in the war, to another set of cities destroyed, to another set of cities turned into frontline positions. But every day bleeds the Russian army out that much more. Every day, the heroes of Ukraine destroy that much more equipment, destroy that much more Russian morale, and grind them down just that little bit more. The battle for Kiev was won. The battle for Kharkiv was won. The battle for Mikolaev was one. And if reports are true, there's a massive Ukrainian force gathering even to assault the Kherson Oblast and liberate that. So keep in mind, everything that I've been describing thus far around uh, Severodonetsk is talking about a very small area. And if defeats are coming in the coming days, don't lose sight of the victories. Don't lose sight of the future victories. And that's all I have to say about the current fighting. But on for something. A little bit more cheerful, as, as news of the Battle of Kharkiv being won came out, we also got to hear about Eurovision. Now, now, Romeo's not here, he kind of rolls his eyes at my excitement over Eurovision, but Ukraine won, and that's what's important. Now, Eurovision, if you don't know, it's a song contest where every country within Europe, and then plus Israel and Australia, will compete to see who has the best pop song. And Ukraine, historically, is very strong in this competition. Most recently, it won with the song 1944 by the Crimean Tatar artist Jamala, which meant that Ukraine was even able to host Eurovision the following year. The previous competition, Ukraine got very close to winning with uh, the band Go A. The song itself became something of a meme. It's very uh, energetic. And this year, Ukraine won 
with the song Stefania, my Kalush Orchestra. It's something of a, a Ukrainian folk plus a bit of hip-hop infusion. A really fun song. I like it. And they won a massive, what seemed like upset victory. Well, not upset in the sense that they were underdogs, really. Going into the competition, the odds makers, the bookies were pretty putting them, putting them a very strong number one uh, favorite. But at first, the various um, country judges did not agree with this idea. And Ukraine was pretty far away from the first place spot after the, the points from the judges side of the competition. There's points from the judges and points from voters. So Ukraine's a bit behind after the judges. So I'm a bit concerned. And then the popular vote came in and Ukraine absolutely crushed in the popular vote. It shot straight to number one to the point where the next few had no hope of even overcoming that point differential. It was a stunning victory. Now, Kalush Orchestra has very strong patriotic credentials. Two of its members could not even compete in Eurovision because they had joined the territorial defense and were too busy fighting against the Russians. They had to send in uh, backups to cover them. And after their performance of the night, the lead singer called for everyone to rescue Mariupol and rescue the defenders of Azovstal. Now, in hindsight, this, of course, obviously did not pan out. But making such a statement at Eurovision was a pretty big deal. It is a massive event with a lot of the continent paying attention. And they were able to get that attention onto a very important topic, Mariupol. And they kind of risk their performance because of it. Eurovision has a strong no politics policy. It's a nonsense policy. It's always politics. Eurovision politics are actually quite fascinating to get into regarding who votes for who, who bribes who, as, as uh, Azerbaijan has done in the past. But you're not supposed to make overt politics a thing, even though Ukraine... <laughs> often has its winning song 1944 was about the Crimean Tatar genocide. So they win, have their conference at the afterwards where they continue to call for support of Ukraine and then flew back home where they're going to um, take their winnings from Eurovision to aid the Ukrainian war effort. They're going to sell their trophy to as a fundraiser. So good for them. It's a good song. They brought attention to Ukraine when more attention is very much needed. And they're giving back, both directly in the form of their members physically fighting against the Russians, and also monetarily by turning their win into a fundraising opportunity to protect Ukraine. So congratulations to, to Kalush Orchestra. I will put a link to their song in the show notes. Go listen to it. And then we get to the idea of, like I said, whoever wins becomes the next host. So best case scenario here, Ukraine wins the war and is able to have a bit of a victory party next year by hosting Eurovision. But it is fairly expensive to do. Money is tight. So there might need to be an alternative host where Ukraine can still be the you know host host, but have the actual concert in a different physical location. Maybe Poland would be a good good spot for that, Lithuania. But we all kind of hope that we can host Eurovision in Mariupol, in Crimea, in Donetsk, to show what our vision of peace can look like, which is uh, far more uplifting than the Russian version.
So that is all of our news for the week. We're trying to get into the groove doing weekly episodes. So look out for it next week. I'm also doing some other projects with the key of independent right now. Uh, we will uh, announce that just because <laughs> self-promotion. But one of our Patreon perks, which we have not really dug into yet, has been the idea of a question of the week. Some of you have been asking us questions directly, and I thought it would be good to actually, you know, get this started, to, to have the segment of answering listener questions. So I haven't, you know, cleared this with the question asker, so I'm not going to be saying any names of any or anything like that. But this one stood out to me as an important one and one I would wish to cover a bit more in the future in the context of how refugees are faring and the various uh, treatment they're getting in different countries. But here is the question, quote, what kind of situation do Ukrainian women who have been victims of systemic mass rape by Russian forces face in Poland, giving Poland's recent hard shifts toward anti-abortion laws? What options do these women have? And what sort of mental health support is offered for refugees in general? Now, this topic came up, um, in, especially after the reports came out of the mass systemic rape in Bucha and the other cities liberated north of Kiev. Uh, some of the people there became refugees in Poland. Now, as a result of this rape, um, several women and girls, yes, very young girls, children, really, became pregnant as a result of rape by the Russians. And when they went to Poland, they were not able to acquire abortion treatment. I realize this is a very thorny topic, uh, but we have already staked ourselves as a leftist podcast, so I'm not going to be too afraid of coming out and saying these kinds of things. Abortion is a right, a very and a very important service that can save the lives and mental well-beings of women and young girls in this case. And this is a pretty extreme example of when it's needed. But Poland is also an extremely Catholic country. It's a very conservative Catholic country that is ruled based on those social mores. And as a part of that, abortion is virtually impossible in the, there. Now, typically what will happen is that if, if a Pole needs an abortion, they will have to typically go to Germany as the closest country, maybe uh, Czechia. Uh, Denmark has services where they, where they help Poles who need abortion treatment. So these options are quite limited in Poland, but they do exist. Now, given the precarious financial position that Ukrainian refugees find themselves in, it can be difficult for them to make these trips to Denmark or Germany. But the usual channels that help Poles have been helping Ukrainians in this regard. So in many cases, these girls will be forced to carry their, their fetuses to term and bear the children of their rapist. Because Poles not only ban abortion, but also go to great lengths to prevent anyone in their country from getting abortions. There is a lot of questioning to see if someone is crossing the border, if they'll receive an abortion. And people can be blocked from leaving Poland if the border guards think that it's for abortion services. So that will have to be navigated. But again, there are people who do know how to navigate it, so it can be done. 
just with difficulty is the unfortunate answer. They do have options, but they are difficult options. Now, a more extreme version of this is that groups in Poland, in uh, Germany rather, have actually smuggled abortifizants into Poland itself with drones, flying a drone over the border with abortifizants in order to distribute them up in the black market. And this is a very important option for people to have. But of course, this still is smuggling in the black market. And when it comes to sensitive medical procedures, it's not always the best option to turn to the black market. That is a message for Americans, of course, because whether or not you make abortion illegal, there still will be abortions. It is just a matter of how safe you want them to be. And Poland has made them quite dangerous in this way, either dangerous or difficult and onerous. And mental health support. Now, I have seen in various Polish, uh, British, and other refugee centers that there have been mental health professionals on staff in order to um, provide medical services, mental health services to refugees, either for rape or just the fact that they had to flee a war and are not refugees. It's all extraordinarily traumatic. So there are mental health resources available. This very much depends on the country and something I would like to look more into. But they exist, but again, not enough. There's not enough support. So I suppose that's my full answer. Um, are they able to receive abortion-giving Poland's um, anti-abortion laws? Short answer, yes. Longer answer, yes, with great difficulty if they're willing to go to another country in order to do so and take the legal risks that go along with that or the medical risks of seeking a black market option within Poland itself. What sort of mental health support is offered for refugees in general varies greatly depending on the country, depending on the uh, refugee site itself. So that is our question for the week. I hope I answered it to an uh, appropriate enough extent. Um, please send us our question, any questions over Patreon. So yes, every week we will try to answer a question such as this. So that is our episode for the week. Uh, hopefully Romeo will be able to be here for next week's so you don't just happen to listen to my droning voice the whole time but please in the meantime please look at our twitter accounts um uh, ukraine without hype at bardaway at and at vagrant journo please sign up for our patreon account if you would wish to support us and receive some of the our new benefits and a special thanks to our patreon supporters they are nope dano ralph david shepherd Georgio Rusta, Ivana Kokriatskaya, Devi, Don, Abir, Alex Grochmal, Amea, Barbara, Big Rob, Brianna Rhoda, Chris Bennington, Chris Walker, Crystal Burns, Daniel Ostrowski, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Deborah Lee, Devra Grazer, Eric Honnold, George, Grace, Had to Laugh, Jacob Holm, James Wise, Jennifer Jarris, Jessica Eck, Justin Devendorf, Kristen Swanland, Laura DeLeon, Laura Licari, Levy Grove, Evgenia, Lottie, Melissa Kokselko, Mike Rones, Mike Lee Whiplash, Noam Hart, Patricia George, Patricia Spurls, Paul Bailey, Rachel Haidu, Rajesh, Randy McNerlin, Robert Bailey, Sanjay, Scott, Grengus, Steve Bien, Stephen Greenberg, T. Bart, Theo, Vic, and Will Stevens. Thank you all very much for your support both monetary and 
just words of encouragement are also very uh, nice to hear as well. But thank you for listening. See you next week. Slava Ukraini.